Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Agency, vendor, and not-for-profit, Lucy Collin has touched virtually every segment of the media and marketing industry. Born and raised in Cartier, Ontario, a small town 80 kilometers north of Sudbury, Lucy moved to Toronto when she was 18 to study fashion merchandising and marketing at Centennial College. After graduating, Lucy moved into media buying and planning at Media Buying Services. Additional opportunities to grow within the agency world presented themselves before pivoting into broadcast sales at the CBC. That was just the start of a sales career that went from local markets in Western Canada to leading sales for multiple Olympic Games and Hockey Night in Canada. Lucy would continue to hold sales and marketing leadership positions at IMG, Marketing Magazine, and Bell Media, to name a few. Lucy Collin, the Canadian Marketing Association's VP of Member Experience, stops by to chat about growing up in Northern Ontario, the move to the big city, her storied media career, and moving into the not-for-profit sector. The CMA is Canada's official marketing association, and we're a bit of a hybrid between a trade and professional association because we support both organizations and the marketing professionals within those companies. Um, And we're really here to support marketers' impact on business in Canada. We provide opportunities for marketers from all across Canada uh, to develop professionally with our PD programs, to contribute to marketing thought leadership, uh, to build strong networks and relationships, to um, also with our public affairs team, to shape positions advocated by CMA to strengthen the regulatory climate for business success. And my role as VP of Member Experience is really to oversee all our members' activities and encourage engagement and participation in the CMA. Uh, We really do consider ourselves a community. Uh, I also oversee all of our events. We do about 25 events a year. Of course, that includes the CMA Awards coming up on November 18th, uh, which is the largest marketing awards program in Canada. Um, I also oversee partnerships and, and sponsorships as well for all of our programs and events. So I sort of consider myself to be a bit of a chief revenue officer at the CMA. Lucy, I'm looking forward to our chat today. So let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from? Um, it's a little embarrassing, but I'm from a very, very small town in northern Ontario, about 80 kilometers north of Sudbury called Cartier. Uh, lived there most of my life uh, until I was about 18 when I finally moved to Toronto. So what was life like growing up in Cartier? Well, it was, like I said, a very, very small town. It was um, a CPR railroad junction town. Um, if you don't know what that is, basically there was the good side of the tracks and the bad side of the tracks. Oh, I, of course, geez. was on the good side of the tracks. Um, so in a junction town, we had 18 rails or 36 rails separating the town uh, with one of those turnstiles where the trains would turn around or the engines would turn around. So um, that's kind of uh, what the town was like. Um, we had one business and um, it was a gas station, restaurant and corner store. And, the, and of course, we had a post office at a train station and that was it. I had to get bussed into the next town to go to school, and uh, that wasn't fun in 40 below weather in February, but uh, that's what we did. Um, and it was, growing up there was very small townish. You know, I have a gun license, so don't be afraid, but uh, <laughs> a lot of hunting, a lot of fishing, a lot of snowmobiling. Um, but I knew very early on that um, I wasn't going to be a small town girl, and uh, my plan was to leave as soon as I finished high school. Growing up there, what were your interests or hobbies? Like, what kept you occupied? It sounds like hunting was part of that. 
yes, I had, um, you know, I had three older brothers who obviously would take me hunting with them and my father, of course, and trapping, you name it. But um, but my my interest was really all about sports. Um, the town itself, although it was very small, was a great community um, with sport, a lot of sports programs, you know, softball, gymnastics, flag football. Uh, they had a track team and uh, and the school was the same. So, um, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, in doing sports really is what I did. Uh, and the school itself, when we had practices, of course, they were early in the morning. So I wasn't uh, able to drive myself. Um, and the town where the school was, was a mining town. And a lot of individuals who lived in Karche, um would get up early in the morning for their shifts. And I would catch a ride with them at 5 a.m. and sit in front of the school till the practice started. Not one of my fondest memories, I must say. <laughs> when you say it was a mining town, uh, assuming the big nickel mine, Sudbury, so like everything yep. was kind of yep. coming yep. together around there? Okay. Yeah, so, that was, um, it was called Enco at the time. I'm not sure if Enco is still there, but um, the town was called Lavac and it was um, Enco Mines. So it sounds like in the neighborhood, everyone pretty much, if you didn't work for the mines, you probably worked for the civil service or... As you mentioned, there was a gas station, a restaurant, and a general store. So it seemed like those were the three employers. Would that be correct? Well, the CPR. Everybody worked oh, the for CPR, the CPR. That's right. Every, CPR. Everybody's family worked for the for the railway. Yes. Yeah. Why do you cite your parents as being your biggest influence growing up? Whenever I'm asked that question, I you know I, again I've had leaders in my career that have influenced me, but it always comes back to my parents. Um, they were you know they cared unconditionally about everything and everybody. Uh, my mother always taught us you know she had I have five siblings so six kids. Um, we had a very large family. My my father came from eleven children, so you know lots of cousins. Um, so. My parents are always about, you know, do everything you can to give back and to look after each other, um, you know, and always do 100% of everything you do. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, working at your your job or you're folding laundry, just do it 100%. Um, you know, you'll always feel better about it. Um, and, you know, I try to instill this in my kids as well. Um, my father was uh, a very organized man. He <laughs> was a list maker, a label maker. And, um, you know, I think he instilled a lot of that in, in me as well. Um, you know, I, I never recall my parents actually punishing any, any of us or yelling very much. You know, of course, we were never perfect, but, um, you know, my best example is, you know, I remember one time my mother and I had wallpapered my bedroom and we had this beautiful wallpaper that we had just completed. And a couple of days later, I bought the new Peter Frampton album. And um, if you recall, if anybody recalls Peter Frampton, he's pretty, pretty handsome. Anyways, I, I, glued, I taped all of the posters onto my bedroom wall. Um, and my mother came in and said, like, what have you done? You're, you're going to rip the wallpaper. You put all this tape on it. And I just apologized and said, oh, my gosh, I didn't think about it. And, and she just said, oh, well, he's a lot cuter than the wallpaper anyway. And that was the end of it. <laughs> so, you know, again, and I, and I try to do the same thing with, with my kids and my friends. It's like, you know, there's uh, no one's saving the world here. It's, uh, it's all about um, supporting each other. You mentioned that your dad was quite the organized individual and some of that passed on to you. Do you think that was a really strong influence going into media, especially because, especially with your agency side, you got to be airtight with those buy sheets. You don't want to mix them up or anything like that. And I've been on the sales side where, yeah, those buy sheets haven't messed up and it caused a lot of calamity. So did that help in any way when, uh, when you started your career in media? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, he, everything we did was completely organized. Everything was like clockwork with him. Uh, you know, if there was a deadline to, you know, be on the road at a certain time, we're going camping. It was every, we were lined up in the car, ready to go and, and that type of thing. And, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I think that did follow 
through with me through my my career on the agency side. And again, back when I was on the agency side, everything was manual spreadsheets. So <laughs> we didn't have uh, we didn't have laptops at our discretion to uh, to help us out. So yes, that definitely was an influence. Okay, so your first job, I guess I could say your only job in Cartier, even though you did have a couple of roles there, wasn't connected back to the mines, and it wasn't for CPR. So what was your first job ever? Uh, well, I actually worked at the only um, restaurant in town, which I said, you know, mentioned I was did a little bit of everything. Um, you know, I started at a young age. My my job was to uh, sell minnows and worms for to the hunters and fishers, and fill out fishing licenses and that type of thing. Um, Loved it, but later got promoted to the gas pumps and then later got promoted to waitressing. So I kind of worked my way up into the only business in town. (laughs) After high school, you were looking for a reason to get out of town. So what brought you to Centennial College and why marketing communications? Well, you know, I knew I wanted to, to leave Cartier as much as I you know loved it there uh, and moved to Toronto. My goal was to get to Toronto. So right out of high school, I applied to about 10 schools, uh, universities and colleges for everything from you know science, laboratory technician um, to hospitality, you name it. And the first response I got back was Centennial College and I just accepted it and went. <laughs> uh, the actual program was called for fashion merchandising and marketing. I just loved the course. It was a great program, and um, I had great instructors and professors. They were they were wonderful, and um, you know I became a little more fashionable. But um, I had always thought maybe I'd go back to to school, but you know started working and um, never never did go back. What was the attraction to Toronto? Like, why did you want to move there after high school versus any other major city city in Canada? Um, to be perfectly honest, I hadn't actually uh, experienced very many big cities uh, <laughs> at any point in time. But in high school, I think it was in grade 12, we did a, uh, a trip to Toronto. Um, and we actually sp- stayed in the U of T residences. And uh, I think we were here for about three days, went to the museums, went to you know the Science Centre, all those type of things. And I had never been to Toronto. It was my first time. And when I got here, I thought, this is large and this is incredible and look at all the streets are paved and there's street lights this is pretty cool <laughs> oh, um and i just i just knew i felt so comfortable and i just knew i'm going to come back here and i'm this is where i'm going to live <laughs> was there any culture shock for you coming from a town of 400 people to one of the biggest cities in north america you know what i think i was just so pumped to move on at that point um i, I don't remember ever being afraid or anxious about it. I said, Mom, can I borrow the car? I'm I'm driving to Toronto and I'm going to find a place to live and I gotta, you know, go sign up for my courses. And um I, you know, drove to Toronto, found a place to live and uh drove the car back the next weekend. Came back on a train, of course, and um and never went back um to visit and things as well as well to but I didn't know one person in Toronto. I did not know a single person until my first day of school. And my goal was to make as many friends within the classes and, and within the program. Um, and I did. And I still stay in touch with several of them today. So that was my goal. I just um, slowly made friends. I, I got a couple of jobs, of course. Uh, I think I had three jobs while I was going to school, working all in the Eaton Center. One, one was in a shoe store. One was in a fashion store. And I actually worked in the Eaton's first salon. Okay, so talk a little bit about the first salon, because I think that was your first, you, you, you mentioned that you did that while you were in college, but that was also your first job out of college. Like, I think there was a promotion in there, if I've got it right. Yeah. 
so I, um, because I had studied fashion, I um, was working very closely with the designers in the first salon and doing a bit of modeling. And um, I actually got my first job um, in media at Mediacom while I was working at the first salon. And of course, the pay was so poor, I had to, I had to keep the job. So I would actually work, <laughs> continue to work at the, at the first salon for about a year and a half after I was working at, uh, at uh, Media Buying Services. But did you bring a different perspective to that just because you had come from a hunting community and it was a community where people had to live off the land? And that's really where the origins of wearing fur comes from is, hey, we need clothing, we need food, and so we're going to use all of the animal. Absolutely. That's exactly what we did. I mean, my 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 godmother was um, was Cree Aboriginal, and, and in order for her to keep the uh, the land she was on, she had to trap it. So I actually would spend my summers, my mother would send me off two weeks a year to help her trap. Um, so I could identify fur pretty easily. So when I was working in the fur salon, um, I was pretty surprising to the designers that, you know, I could easily distinguish between beaver, mink, you know, muskrat, um, all the different furs. So uh, it, it did help me out a little bit. Yeah. Talk a little bit about your first job at, at Mediacom or at MBS. What was that like right out of college? You know what? That was, um, it was great. I, um, part of the program, the, uh, the, the marketing program at Centennial, um, there was a marketing and advertising uh, program as well within the course. And my instructor, um, who had actually worked at, on the agency side, um, suggested that I maybe try the agency side. She said, you know, you're really organized. You're really good at this and this. And I said, you know what? Sure. I, I need a job now. So um, she, she set me up on a couple of interviews and I got hired. And um, I, my first job, I was an affidavit checker. So, um, and then you know, quickly moved up through the ranks um, over the years. So you were spending a lot of time doing legal reading, I guess. Well, like no, affidavit an affidavit is really just a, a contract that matches, you know, here's what they oh, bought okay. and here's what the contract says. <laughs> gotcha. Oh, okay. So no, it's I thought just, there'd be like, I, I imagine you pouring over a lot of terms and conditions just to make sure that they maybe, I don't know, maybe the media supplier didn't sneak something in there that says, you know, you've got to pay net 15 days and you're like, no, we're net 60. We're not signing this. Yeah, no, it was it was basically saying, OK, the, uh, you know, Copper Tone bought a spot um, in Dallas. And yes, that spot ran. Check. <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty much what I did. After MBS, you moved on to Gray and uh, you assumed the role of media supervisor. So what brought you to Gray? I, I'm going to say the money. You know, it's it's kind of why at, at that age, why you move on to agencies to do something. Well, one to do something different and uh, um you know, just learn, continue to learn. And um, so money's fair well, though. You got to pay the bills. Yeah, absolutely. One of my, one of my good friends who I'm actually still very good friends with uh, Julie McElroy, who owns her own agency right now. Um, K&M, um, M&K marketing. media, M&K media, Julie. Yep. We just actually booked a trip uh, to uh, Costa Rica in a couple of, in a couple of months. Anyway, so Julie had gone to Gray and she said, you have to come over here. It's, it's great. I love it. She was working on the Warner Lambert business. Um, and she said they need somebody to head up the PNG AOR. And I'm like, well, that sounds interesting. Um, so I went and, um, we, you know, sat beside each other and worked very hard. Everything was done manually, um, manual brand, you know, brand scheduling, um, with massive amounts of spreadsheets and brands. And, uh, I just remember saying to my boss, like, there's got to be an easier way to do this. And, you know, maybe if we had a computer program and I took a course at IBM and whatever, and, um, you know, that was 1985. So, you know, there wasn't, <laughs> there weren't many other options. Um, but after that life got a lot easier, but, um, you know, it was a great job. 
I had the chance to work on PNG when I was at CBC and broadcast was I want to see if it was done the same way it was when you were working on it at Gray. Were they like basically booking a massive contract one year out, like laying everything in and then month by month or quarter by quarter, you were reallocating spots to specific brands like Tide or Duracell or anything like that? Yep, yep, exactly. It was um, big spreadsheets that just had, you know, all of, well, back then, CTV, CBC, you know, CHCH, all the stations. Um, I, I only did the uh, um, TV broadcast. And um, you would, exactly, you know, Crest, Bubblicious, and you would just go along and schedule all the spots in based on on the media plan and, um, and you know, fit everything into the proper spot and, and did that. See, that kind of work doesn't really get the credit it deserves, because I've always found that if you get a chance to work on a client like that, putting aside it's one of the biggest brands globally, just the way they book and conduct themselves, you have to be on top of things. And it kind of forces you to either sink or swim. And in your case there, you swam because you said, okay, how can we make this easier? How can we organize ourselves better so fewer things fall through the cracks? Because as we know, when you're working on something of that magnitude, there's always going to be the odd spot that falls through the cracks. And you're staring there, you're there at uh, the office late at night trying to figure out why it doesn't reconcile back to the conjunction. If I can even call it the conjunction, I don't even know what it was called anymore. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? When you're doing those allocations, you're like, I was told to take you know, those 10 spots, they were all booked as 60s. I've got to convert them into how many 30s versus how many 15s. And these go to Tide and whatever crest, like you've said, and you're always off by one. And I found that working on businesses like that at the beginning, it's frustrating. But once you get into a system, it sets you up for success throughout your career. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. It was um, it was very time consuming and and a lot of deadlines, right? Yeah, we were doing these um, again, you know, a lot of the, when you're, when you're looking at brands like that, a lot of times the amount of media support they're giving a brand is based on sales. So of course, you know, the P&G account managers would get back to you and say, okay, you know what, um, sales on Listerine are tanking right now or whatever it might be. Um, so pull them and then you're just back starting all over again. So yeah, there's, there has to be some level of appreciation for, for that particular role. Yep. So what brought you to JWT and how did the associate media director role differ from what you were doing as a media supervisor back at Gray? JWT came knocking on my door uh, with an amazing opportunity, so I, I jumped at it. And um, I was really hired to come and head up the Warner Lambert AOR and a few, a few smaller accounts. Um, and I, I loved it. I was there for three years, um, you know, as an, and finally as an associate media director. Um, and the role had um, several different accounts and teams reporting into me. Um, and I really spent more time presenting to clients than actually hands-on buying at that point or, or planning. It was, it was really more client-related. Um, so that was kind of the difference. To use a sports analogy, because uh, you were an athlete growing up, was it difficult for you to go from being a player to being more of a coach? It was. It was. And it still is. It's I, I even today, you know, um, I find myself still trying to crawl back into the trenches and into the weeds. <laughs> um, and, and I think and sometimes I, I don't do it all the time, but sometimes I think it's important to know what's happening from the ground up within your teams or within your organization. Uh, and you have to do it. So you understand the full, you know, start to finish of, of, of everything that's going on. But, yeah, I struggled with that a bit. And Warner Lambert, is that a. Was that like Warner Brothers? Was that a movie account? No, no. So Warner Lambert, I don't think exists anymore. There was two divisions of Warner. There was Adam Brands. Um, so it's like Chicklets, Dentine. Um, ah, okay. So you're in. So you're package goods again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's all package goods again. Yeah. Um, and then they had a confectionery. So they had the confectionery brand, and they also had their 
pharma brands. So like things like Listerine and, uh, you know, that type of stuff. Pepto-Bismol, I think might have been part of that, but they've all sold off so many of the brands now. I'm not sure where they all end anymore. So a lot of your P&G experience transferred over to Warner Lambert. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then after this, you made the jump to the dark side. So what brought you to CBC and uh, what attracted you overall to media sales coming over to this side of the aisle? Well, you know, at first I, I had no interest. I really, I really enjoyed working at JWT. I had a great team. It was all great. Um, but, um, you know, the sales team I was working with at CBC, um, we got along very well. We actually became friends and, um, you know, they said, you should, you would be really, really great at, um, at, at selling media at CBC. Um, you know, you're, you're always open to new ideas. You're always taking a chance on things. You know, I was one of the first to buy TSN and Newsworld, which were called specialty channels back then. <laughs> now they're mainstream. Um, so, you know, I ended up meeting with uh, the head of sales at CBC and they convinced me to um, to move over to the dark side. <laughs> and I thought, you know what, it's, I'm trying something new. It's always about trying something new for me. So that's what we did. Something you said earlier in our discussion, when you came to Toronto and uh, you started at Centennial College, you didn't know anyone. You were on your own, but you made a goal of making friends and getting to know people. Did you find that those experiences helped you in sales? Because you basically have to do the same thing. Like you obviously already had an established network on the agency side, but I have to imagine that you were calling on people that you had never worked with or never heard of. And you essentially had to get their attention the same way you were probably getting your friends' attentions or your future friends' attentions when you're at Centennial College. So did that experience at Centennial when you moved to Toronto for the first time transfer over to your early uh, sales career? I mean, I think it did. I think it did. There was one instance um, in the program. Uh, I had, you know, made friends with everybody in the program. Um, and in our final year, we had to actually put on a fashion show. Uh, we did it down at the St. Lawrence Market, and we had to manage everything from the PR to the communications to the marketing to finding designers to donate clothing to, you know, the venue, uh, ticket sales, media, press, all that kind of stuff. So it was basically a start to finish event um, fashion show. And when we started the planning, um, the class had to nominate a director, and I got nominated as the director. So I was touching on all these different things like working, you know, I had a team that was looking after the advertising and a team looking after the venue and ticket sales and the PR and working with, and, and I found that, you know, trying to convince, you know, these designers and to, to actually, you know, give you their clothes so that we could, you know, donate them for our fashion show kind of thing was, um, was a bit of selling and getting the media to cover it and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, that, that, that did help me in my sales. It's, it was, basically selling at that point. <laughs> okay. So I spent some time working at CBC as well. I want to see if you had to touch on this software. We're going to, we, this will be incredibly nostalgic of both you and I worked on the same system and by today's standards, it's poorly named, but the ISIS booking system. Oh yes. <laughs> does that oh, bring yes. back memories? Oh, it God. does. It does. Yes. The ISIS booking system. But you know what, from a system standpoint, it did what it had to do. Like it was, it worked. <laughs> and compared you to know? Webpack, it had live avails. I remember hearing that yeah. when I was over there and I would complain about the system and they're like, just be glad you're not at CTV. They're not working with live avails. And exactly. I'd be like, like, I'd I mean, be like, the system was in real time. It was, it, it, you know, it was pretty advanced for its time, really. It was, that's for sure. Was it a bit of a cold shower for you though, when you started in sales? You know what? I kind of jumped into it pretty easily. Um, I was, I was, I'm not going to lie. I was nervous. I thought, you know, can I do this? 
Um, but it, I kind of fell into it pretty easily, to be honest. I was just going to say, and I, you know, I started sort of at the, you know, the low end, sort of as a selective sales rep. So, you know, my, my territory was selling selective stations, Winnipeg West. Um, CBWT. Yep, there you go. Yep, CBXT. <laughs> we can do this. I, I, it's been a while since I've said those acronyms. Oh. CBUT. <laughs> CBUT. And then, yep, yeah, I could do that as well. Yep. And then I later moved on to um, when they launched the regional networks, um, when they decided that, hey, we could actually package up, you know, Western Canada, Eastern Canada, uh, much like a global was doing to compete with them. So we, we ended up um, launching our regional networks and I was moved to that team. Um, and then along with the, the full network, selling the full network. Um, but, you know, my, while I was there, my, my goal was always to, to get into sports sales because I, I loved sports and, and the Olympics and hockey night in Canada and all that stuff that we were doing. So um, I just kept applying to be a sports sales manager. And um, it took a while, but I finally got the role. What was your favorite part about working on the sports side of the business? Because now, just for context, anyone listening, because I've had experience doing that too at CBC, you're getting out of doing spots and dots. Like there are bigger sponsorship opportunities on the horizon oh, right God, now. Yeah. It's kind of like an artist yeah. looking at a can, like a canvas that they had painted in a, in a museum or in an art gallery and going, I did that. Cause you can kind of do that too. Like I remember when it was Molson hockey night in Canada, like you'd yeah. look at that opening and if you sold that, you were like, that's my baby. Yeah, and that's what I did. We were selling, you know, Molson Hockey in Canada. We were selling the CFL and uh, Major League Baseball. But we were also selling, the, the interesting thing to me was, yeah, there were those big ticket items that we were selling sponsorships in and Olympics as well. Um, but what's also interesting to me is that we also were selling, you know, amateur ath uh, athletics as well, you know, so um, Olympic trials, those type of things. Um, like the old CBC and, Sports Saturday? I remember yeah, that. Exactly. Yep, that's exactly yeah, exactly. what it was. You know, skiing, you know, the... Um, alpine skiing and uh, snowboarding and all kinds of things, you know, so it was, it was, you know, you had all those big things, but you also had, you had everything and it was great. Um, and uh, yeah, I loved it. It was, it was great. It was, um, I, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to say, you know, I was, I think I was the first woman at CBC uh, to work in sports sales. So again, you know, walking into, you know, General Motors and at the time it was, um, you know, the agency, Universal uh, uh, Media, walking into their offices and sitting down with, you know, myself sitting at the table with, you know, five men uh, selling, you know, Hockey Night in Canada. It was kind of like head tilting going on and it's like, what are you doing here? And it's like, just sit down and listen to what I got to tell you. <laughs> It was, it was, it was, uh, yeah, it wasn't a warm welcome until I would say it took about a year. It took about a year before, um, clients and agencies realized that, you know what, she's know what she's doing and, and this is going to be good. So, so you felt it. you had to prove yourself a little bit more than your male counterparts, specifically within the realm of sports media sales. Absolutely. Yeah. It was, uh, it was, it was a little tough back then, but, um, absolutely. No, it, uh, it all worked out. I want to get your thoughts on selling the hockey playoffs because I always found that that was when I was doing it, it was one of those bittersweet things. Like it was a very exciting thing to do, but it was something you had to stay on top of because CBC had practical, I don't want to say every game, but almost every game. Like sometimes there were what, two, three games in a single evening. And then to give away a bit of secret sauce to anyone who's listening, we didn't actually know what the lineups were going to be until maybe a couple of days before, and we had to do a lot of shuffling. So a lot of people were doing blind, blind, blind buying, especially if they were doing it at upfront season going, yeah, we'll buy the first day of the playoffs, but we don't know who's going to be in there. And just tracking that to a T. Did you find that as well? Uh, no, yeah, absolutely. But, um, but you know, I was, I was 
pretty upfront about it. I just said, you know what? Here's the price. Here's the playoff package. We don't know if it's, it's going to go, you know, around a round of five games, around a round of seven games. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, but if you want to be in that seventh game, you got to buy it now. And if you, you know, and, and but being, I, I just found for me anyways, I was never, um, you know, not disclosing everything of how it worked and that there was risks and that they had to take a risk if they wanted it. And then sometimes you wouldn't even get that game seven game and you were scrambling to be like, Hey, don't you really want game one of the next series? <laughs> yeah. Like, I usually just said, guess what? Great news. You're in first game of the next series. <laughs> did you have the opportunity? You. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> did you have the opportunity to, uh, work there while a Canadian team was in the Stanley cup final. I never had that chance, but all of my, uh, all of my bosses said, it's pretty magical if you can be here when there's a Canadian team in the final. No, I think the closest we got was Edmonton in the Gretzky days. Mm. Um, that was probably the closest we got, I think. No, for yeah. me, we had, uh, I could forget what year it was. I, th- I want to say we're going back to 2000. I think it was 2009 or 2010, but it was when Matt Sandin was playing for the Canucks and they were in the, uh, the Pacific Con- or the Western Conference final and they just had this surge coming. And I got to tell you, it's one of the few times in my career where I have been in control and people have been calling me and just opening up their wallets and saying, we'll take it, we'll take it. There's a Canadian team going. So that's the closest I've ever had to that magic. But at that time, people said to me, hey, if they go all the way, my God, is it going to be mayhem? People are going to be stepping on each other's heads to try to get into this Vancouver Stanley Cup final. It was tough, <laughs> for sure. And um, you also worked the Olympics as well, too, right? Yep, yep. We, Do you have uh, a specific, specific Olympic Games to call out that was memorable for you? Well, I attended two of them. I was in Atlanta and Salt Lake City. Again, you know, I, I, I left CBC, I think it was 2003 or four. so... Um, and uh, I covered a lot of them, but I think for two of them, I was pregnant, so I wasn't allowed to fly. Ah, <laughs> so, uh, okay. Uh, and uh, so I, but I did get to go to um, Salt Lake City and um, Atlanta. And I have to say, Salt Lake City was incredible. Um, you know, skiing on the same hill with uh, some of the, the downhill um, athletes um, was pretty amazing, so... And it was also the post 9-11 Olympics. So, and I, what I remember about that Olympic Games more than anything else is uh, Bono doing this beautiful tribute to America during the opening ceremonies. I imagine you saw that live too, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. But, uh, but it was, you know, it was uh, everywhere we went on our bus, you know, the bus would have to pull over and they had, you know, um, full searches of the entire bus. Like the security was so significant. Mm. Was it like that too in Atlanta after the, the bombing happened? Yep, same thing. Same thing, actually. It was uh, lots, lots of security. Um, it was very well done, and uh, it was actually easier to walk everywhere. <laughs> a lot of walking oh, than it was to take a car because they, they basically, you know, were stripping down cars and searching everything. So, um, yeah, it was, it was high security for sure. Putting aside the pomp and pageantry around the Olympic Games, which do you prefer? <laughs> and you got to pick one: winter or summer? I gotta say, winter. Really? Is there a particular event that catches your attention? The hockey and the, and the skiing, the downhill. I love it. And there's so much, I mean, and, you know, I have to say bobsledding is something I love to watch. The bobsledding and and luge, that's something I love as well. Um, But yeah, pretty much all of the Olympic sports. Um, Maybe not so much the figure skating. I I don't mind watching it, but uh, definitely it's the, it's the hockey and the, and the, and the skiing for sure. 
From there, you moved into a national sales director role at CBC. Was that bitter, a bittersweet moment because you're moving up in your career, but it sounds like you were incredibly passionate about what you were doing in sports sales? One of the things that CBC was pretty good at was um, restructuring <laughs> where it made sense. And uh, I'm sure you went through a lot of restructuring yourself. So I did kind of uh, it kind of became, um, you know, what? let's let's start merging the teams together and let's start, you know, putting sports and and regular national sales together. Um, so I became the, the director of national and, and sports sales. So I had all the teams. Um, and, you know, I think I had four national sales teams under me. Plus I had in the regions, um, the, the regional um, sales directors in, you know, Montreal, Vancouver, uh, anything to do with sports, they still reported into me. So I, you know, a lot of traveling, a lot of, um, you know, moving parts. Um, wasn't really much involved in the day-to-day. I tried to stay hands-on again on some of the bigger um, clients and the bigger agencies and some of the, you know, sponsorships we were doing. But uh, that role really ended up turning into being real, you know, more a management role, you know, budgets and sales forecasts and managing people. And, um, you know, I I loved it all, but, um, you know, it became very consuming after a while. But rather than leave CBC for another company, you made a conscious decision to step down and spend more time with your family. So where did that come from? The timing kind of presented itself when there was yet another restructuring happening at the CBC. Um, I didn't think it was the right move. And again, I'm all about being upfront and honest. And I thought, you know what? Two things are happening right now. One, I'm not quite sure I like where the department is going. Um, So it doesn't make sense for me to be here. And two, I've been thinking about taking a break from work and spending some time with my kids. You know, I had two small kids at home at the time. Uh, they were being raised by nannies. And I just thought, wait, you know what? I, I've got to to make a change here and the timing is perfect. Um, so I think I'm just going to, to leave and um, take some time with the family. CBC wasn't happy. They did everything they could to try and keep me, but I just said, you know what? Uh, it's, I've made the decision, so I'm going to, I'm going to do that. So that's what I did. And I, ended up leaving, um, I think it was May, I think it was like 2003, maybe. Yeah. So you're spending time with your family. Do you start to get the itch to get back into the industry? Like, how do you decide when it's enough and I've got to uh, go back into the workforce? Well, it didn't last too long. It took about six months. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then I, I, you know, I kind of got my fill. I, uh, like everything I do, I just jumped in and started volunteering at the school, uh, running fun fairs and school programs, after school programs, helping in the office, uh, you know, started helping out at the church, doing all kinds of things. Um, And uh, I did spend some time um, also with a career coach at the time, just to sort of, you know, see what's my passion, what should I be doing? And, you know, if I'm going to get back into it, what direction should I, should I move towards? Um, And it all kept coming back to sports. So I thought, okay, you know, I've done the broadcast side, I've done, you know, the media side, what haven't I done? And I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to maybe get into rights, broadcast rights and that kind of thing. And I guess the only game in town, the only game in town at that point was IMG. Um, So I just, went to IMG and said, hire me. This is what I want to do. (laughs) Um, At the point in time, they didn't have any openings um, in the, in the broadcast area. So, um, or in the the rights sales area, they only had um, selling of things like, you know, um, sponsorships in, you know, the, um, in amateur sports, stars on ice. Uh, I was actually hired at the time to be uh, the lead on Hockey Canada sponsorship sales, but 
uh, about a week after I arrived, they actually, IMG lost the contract to oh, Hockey Canada. So then I was the lead on Soccer Canada, um, which was fun. All I ended up doing was trying to negotiate getting the, you know, the Canadian team on Air Canada for free um, <laughs> and selling logos on Mike Weir's hat. That's that's about what my, my job became. So when I realized I wasn't actually going to get into the right side, um, I thought, you know what, I think I'm just going to keep my eyes and ears open for other things that are out there. And um, Chorus came knocking on my door and I just kind of went, you know what, I think I'm, I've done this long enough. Um, I'll, I'll try something different. So you find yourself back in broadcast, but this time you're in the private sector. So how did what you were doing at Chorus differ from, say, your days at CBC? Well, the role at Chorus was was very different. It was I wasn't in broadcast sales. I was actually in um, promotional sales. It was the um, it was we called client marketing. So it was more about um, you know it was the position I, I accepted. It was a one year contract. Actually, it was about all about promotional integration. So um, again, you know, today it's done seamlessly. Back then, it was um, you know trying to find talent on, you know, on YTV or WTN or CMT um, that would work with brands and marketers on, um, you know, product integration, uh, promotional vignettes, that type of thing. So that's the team that I was was working with um, at, uh, at Chorus at the time. Um, and it was fun. It was great. I learned a lot. It, you know, something I hadn't done before. Uh, the crazy thing now is that I believe the um, the group that actually does that is called uh, Tempo, and um, my sister works there. And you left Chorus to jump into B2B marketing, and specifically, you went to Rogers working on marketing magazines. So how did that come about? Did you find the role, or did the role find you? I found the role. I Again, after my contract was up at Chorus, I thought, um, now what? What's, what's next? What haven't I done? What would be something different? And... Um, I thought publishing, let's try publishing. So I knew quite a few people more on the consumer side than the B2B side um, in publishing, like at Chatelaine and Money Sense and those publications. But, um, you know, they suggested maybe you should talk to somebody at um, on, the, on the B2B side, marketing magazine. And I thought, OK, great. So I went to speak to um, the, the publisher of marketing magazine and they said, great, we'll hire you as a, you know, we got a position for a, a senior salesperson let's give it a try. And I ended up going to Rogers Publishing. And then you had a director role and then you became the publisher at Marketing Magazine. Take me through what exactly the publisher does, because anytime someone says they're the publisher of this magazine, I kind of think it's more of an editorial role where it's up to them to make sure there's a, a consistent voice throughout the publication. They're doing all the edits, literally reading everything word for word, but it doesn't sound like that's the case at all. It seems like it's more business focused. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's, that you're, you're thinking editor in chief. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. On the, so on the publishing side, uh, yeah. So I, I, you know, was on sales side, promoted director, uh, you know, the publisher left and then the, you know, vice president of publishing said, you know what, you're, you're kind of doing the job anyway. Why don't you become a publisher? And I went, you know, I've been in publishing for three years. Like really, you need a publisher of this magazine <laughs> after three years. And he said, well, you're kind of doing it now anyway. And it's really, you know, and I said, I will do it if you let me hire, because the person I was replacing was publisher and editor in chief. And uh, when they left, I said, I, I said I could do the publisher role, but I said I cannot be an editor in chief, and I can't, and I cannot do that role. If you let me hire the person I want to do that job, then I'll take it. And he, they agreed. So I hired a great 
editor in chief. He actually came from a magazine in Vancouver, and he moved to, back to moved to Toronto. Um, and the, so, the role of the publisher essentially is your general manager. So, yes, the editor in chief reported into me. You know, his editorial team reported into him. The sales team reported into me. Um, I was responsible for, you know, production, you know, um, you know, what kind of paper we're using, who's printing on them, who, you know, what kind of ink are we using, um, this, uh, sales, you know, we were doing events, the marketing awards at the time. And, um, you know, we started the media innovation awards and the digital marketing awards. So again, it was building the business and all the elements support the business. So everything from, you know, again, it was, it was a difficult time in publishing, um, back then and, you know, everything was going digital. So, you know, I had to, work with the team to develop uh, a magazine app and, you know, really ramp up our website um, and all those type of things. So that's, that's really the role of the, of the publisher is to, to be the manager. So you moved on from marketing magazine and you went to Bell Media. So what brought you over there and talk a little bit about what you did as the VP of marketing innovation and integrated sales. I left Rogers Publishing. Well, I should say they left me. Uh, Rogers, of course, started selling off all their B2B publications. So the writing was on the wall uh, and they eliminated the uh, the publishing role. Um, and then I thought, you know what? I really do miss the broadcast side. I think I'm, I'm going to try and get back into the broadcast side. Um, the only broadcaster left was Bell Media. So I thought, let me give that a try. Um, and I heard they were hiring in a marketing role. So I applied and, and got the role as vice president of marketing and innovation integrated sales and and really what that was um was marketing in the b2b space so the sales team at cbc uh, sorry at um this at bell media so everything from you know ctv all the specialty channels uh digital astral at a home um i was basically their their marketing uh support so i was working with them on a b2b space and um you know, helping them just get in front of agencies and clients uh, and sell and uh, managing all of that. So was that a lot of sales collateral development, like marketing sales collateral? Like what did like a, a typical nine to five, not that you were really working a nine to five, no one does in this business, but what did a typical day look like for you uh, in that role? Um, you know, we were, we were helping the sales team, um, you know, we were doing road shows, we were doing, um, you know, a lot of the collateral material, all the merchandise. I mean, you know, we had a, 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 you know, when I was at Bell Media, we had a closet the size of my house that had items right up to CTV to to all the digital side as well. Uh, I spent a lot of time trying to get the uh, the senior sales team uh, in front of, um, you know, speaking at um, CMA events, speaking at, you know, conferences, getting, you know, building up their profile, working on that. Um, you know, we did the the fall launch, <laughs> massive launch uh, that we did every year for CTV and, and all of the channels. Um, so really, that's what I we did most of the time. And um, yeah, and then that uh, ended up going away. There was actually two people doing the same role, one in Montreal and one in Toronto, and they decided they didn't need two people. And the Montreal... Um, person who had been there for like many years took on doing both English and French Canada and doing everything. So uh, I left there after about two years, but it was a great, I loved it there. I had a great team. Um, and then I once again got into now, what am I going to do mode? <laughs> Did that include the much music video awards? No, the much music video awards were really managed, but we, I mean, we, we worked with clients to, you know, attend the awards and we had hospitality and hosting for that, but the actual program itself was done by the production team and the, um, and the programming team. So after leaving Bell, you landed at the Canadian Marketing Association. So let's bring it full circle. 
did you find the role or did the role find you? Uh, it kind of found me. Um, so I was out of work and was kind of looking at, you know, what next again. And um, my previous boss at CBC, Doug Brooks, had become the president and CEO of the Canadian Marketing Association. And he called me and he goes, hey, so I saw your LinkedIn and you're not doing anything right now. He's there. I need you over here. you got to come over and help me, um, you know, rebuild the member engagement uh, team. He said, you know, we've got to, we've got to, I got to rebuild this place. And I, and you're the person I know that can do it. And I'm like, well, you know, what can you pay me? This is a non-for-profit. I've never done this before. You know, do I get a car- corporate card? No. Do I get a parking spot? No. Do I get an expense account? No. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, really? Why would I want to do this? And then he then he pulled the, you know, the sort of philanthropic card going, well, we're a non-for-profit and, and you know, you've got to give back to the marketing community you've been involved with for your entire career. Um, he's like, how about give me a year or two and come and do this and, you know, I won't hold you to longer than that. So I accepted the job um, and went as actually director of member engagement. Um, and um, funny enough, I'm still there and, um, you know, moved up to VP. Uh, so I now oversee all of, as I mentioned before, all of the uh, member engagement as well as all of our events. Um, and you know what? I have such an amazing team. I, I'm i still there. So how would you compare working in the not-for-profit sector versus the for-profit sector or even the public sector as well? Because you kind of, kind of got the holy trinity right there ticked off. It's very different. You're really um, you're you're managing membership in the business, and you know trying to keep the marketing community engaged and supported as much as you can. Um, it's it's very different. It's very different. But um, but you know, I, like I said, seven years later, I'm still here, so <laughs> close to seven years. Lucy, this has been a great chat. Are you ready to jump into rapid fire questions? Um, sure. Go ahead. Oh, all right. <laughs> the campaign you are most proud of. Okay. Well, you know, I'm not a creative, but in a, from a sales standpoint, the most, I guess the, the most biggest campaign I'm proud of is back in, I'll go back to CBC. So years and years ago, uh, working in sports, uh, working with the production team, working with programming, um, they weren't really up for uh, promotion or advertising or getting clients involved in anything they did. But uh, I was able to sell through, uh, at the time, uh, Don Cherry's Coach's Corner on Hockey Night in Canada and got them to allow us to have a sponsor. And at the time, it was Mr. Lube. Your favorite movie? Okay. You're going to think this is crazy, but Face Off. <laughs> I don't even know if you know it. John Travolta and Nicolas one, yeah. Cage, two of my favorite actors. And I think I've watched that movie 20 times. And they're playing each other in that one. Yeah, playing different versions of each other. Yeah, it's hilarious. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? That's easy, Sandra Bullock. My follow-up, if Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would you call it? I think I've already said it. Try it all. (laughs) Your favorite book? I have a lot of them, but most recently I read Ron Tite's uh, Think, Do, Say. I'm not sure if you've read it, but uh, it's a really great book. If you know Ron Tite, he's funny and smart and creative, and it's a really it's a really great read. Your favorite song? You're So Vain by Carly Simon. Want me to sing it for you? If you want to go into break out into a solo, go a cappella. You walked in. No, I'm just joking. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> the best advice you have ever received? Always look after your family and friends and colleagues. Be empathetic and think of everybody else first. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? I would say have more kids. I love being a mother. Um, I have wonderful children. I started late in in life. So, you know, I had my my second child at 39, which is kind of late these days. Um, If I had started at 
24, 25, I would have had six kids. I would have had a tribe or a full hockey line. (laughs) (laughs) My signature closing question, if you weren't in media and marketing, what would you be doing and why? I think I would have actually been a restaurant owner. Again, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty chatty, as you know, and or know now, and uh, loved meeting people, talking to people, hearing stories. Uh, I'm also very organized, and there's nothing that frustrates me more than walking into a restaurant and, and, and having slow service or poor service and stuff. So my restaurant would have been top notch. Lucy, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.